Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, my friends, this is Kyle Brost with an episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction. Um, Today, we have on with us David Bell, who is the CEO of USA Mobile Drug Testing. He's a father of six, um, a man of faith, and somebody that we're going to dive into his life experience and what it's like to run his business, um, some of the work that they do to support veterans, um, and really just dive into what his life experience in terms of of raising six kids, running a business, being a man of faith, what all those things look like for him. David, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate the opportunity to share with your uh, community. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a a little bit. I mean, obviously, CEO of USA Mobile Drug Testing, we'll talk a little bit about the work that you guys do. Father of six, what else should people know about you? Well, first and foremost, I I, I like to open up with that I'm a husband, right? Uh, Being a father is an important aspect, but without my wife, I wouldn't be who I am. So, uh, you know, as a husband and father of six, you can imagine there's some significant time uh, devoted there. But, you know, really a couple of things that I've developed in my uh, later years is really passion, right? What am I passionate about as an individual? Um, obviously, my faith you mentioned, but, uh, you know, finding some things outside of the the family uh, as well as the business life is, is was important. So, you know, I love to spearfish, scuba dive. I love teaching my kids that, taking them out on the boat. But I also like riding my motorcycles, right? Getting a little bit of that me time. So those are pretty important things. And, and those are things that I'm very passionate about and love to do. Well, so how do you balance it all? I mean, six kids, geez. Yeah. Yeah. I get that all the time. I kind of get the uh, either, you know, we, we go somewhere and they're like, yeah, I have six kids. I'm having a conversation. I usually get the Catholic jokes, you know, and so we just roll with it, right? It is what it is. Um, I always wanted to have children come from a large family. Um, you know, three kids I thought would be my limit, but six kids is where we're, where we're at and we're blessed. They're just amazing kids. Um, so balance is a challenge. Um, I'm blessed to get to work with some of my family, um, that, that are, that are older and uh, the five little kids that are at home right now, um, definitely take up our time, everything from elementary to middle school. And so it's really lots of activities there. Um, and it's a team. Uh, working with my wife, working with family, working with the community to try to balance what's going on in their lives. Um, and then, you know, obviously running a business takes a, a lot of demand. Um, and you have to have very specific strategies in order to deal with all of the different things. And if you're not having the conversations with the appropriate people to set up structures you're going to have a lot of heartache. And I went through a lot of that heartache. So I was like, I'm, I'm testifying. Well, and you started, you started young, right? I mean, especially on I, the, the family I, side. I did. You I did. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, early on, I was, I considered leaving California, coming to Florida. My parents were divorced and was with my mom in high school and was, was looking, what am I, what am I going to do? And I considered joining the Navy, kind of took the tests, moved to Florida, was, was going to, you know, join up and deploy. And, um, something changed my mind, whether it was fear, who, who knows? I, I don't know specifically um, what changed my mind other than I had gotten a job and 
things were going well, and I just kind of went with that. And, and, and in that process, uh, being a young individual on my own at 18 years old, um, started to live life in a way that'll, that many 18-year-olds do. And, you know, uh, met a girl, had a baby at 20 years old, right? So that's, that's something that I would, would highly not recommend for, the, for most people. It's not an easy way to start life, but this uh, the key point in which I had to, to choose. Am I going to be responsible or am I just going to be a kid that has a kid, right? Um, yeah. And at that point, I mean, I started working two jobs and, and it didn't stop. So definitely created a new drive for me. Well, I mean, so that can, I mean, at 20 years old, that could be this this huge life-altering event. And I'm sure it was a life-altering event. I can't think of many more things that would have a bigger impact than all of a sudden, uh, and I say all of a sudden, but, yeah, uh, right. you know, having another person that you're responsible for their, their livelihood, their fulfillment, their uh, existence um, at 20. And you adjusted though. I mean, you, you made it work, right? Yeah. And I think that resilience comes from, from my father and, and, and his upbringing, you know, how I, I was raised. Um, we weren't religious, you know, we didn't go to church on Sunday, um, didn't talk about God, didn't really know that, no, those conversations, but, but my dad was very moral individual, very grounded. You know, he owned his own uh, small business. It was a cabinet shop. He, you know, he built, you know, custom furniture. And so I got to see what it was like for somebody to have to get themselves up, go to work and do what it took. You know, I can remember there was just many times as a kid that, you know, Christmas was, Hey, here's a fishing pole. This is what you got. Times weren't always the, the easiest. And and I didn't, you know, use that as an opportunity to look down on it, but I really looked at how my dad was available to coach baseball, be there every Saturday so we could play soccer and baseball. And, and, and he had to make himself available to do that. He was a single father for a lot of years. Um, my mom was in California and this, we just ended up with him in Florida. So it, it, it was something that I, I learned. I, he, he distilled into me just making the right choices. And so, um, uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do is, is is take the responsible path and do what it takes. And even if that means working 90 hours a week, you just do what you have to do. Yeah, I think it's something about that generation that had that uh, that kind of mindset. And, and I don't know that it carried through to everyone in the next generation. Um, and there's some trade-offs, good and bad to that. But uh, as you were talking about, you know, the fishing pole for Christmas, I don't know why, but it reminded me when I was a kid uh, – my my parents were divorced. My mother had remarried, uh, and they were both going to school. And so we lived in this, um, you know, cheap apartment in in Minnesota. And uh, for my birthday one year, I, I woke up and I had like six presents all wrapped, and they were all wrapped differently. And that was a big deal because I didn't think I was going to get that many presents. So I was super excited about all six of these presents. And I so the first one I open up, and it's like this uh, little soft ball. Uh, not a softball, but like a squishy ball. Um, And it says Kellogg on it. And so it was like a a ball that you mail in the, the uh, box. I don't know if people remember. Yeah, like box tops or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, You used to like cut off the box tops. You can mail them in and get like free stuff. Uh, So it was one of those, one of those balls. And I was like, Oh, you know, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. You know, I got like this ball. Uh, Well, all five other gifts were the same ball. (laughs) So, So I had six of these gifts all wrapped differently, but they were all the same Kellogg ball that my mom had like saved, you know, these, uh, 
cereal box tops to get for me. But so when you're talking about fishing poles, I don't know why, but that memory came back to my mind about uh, being excited that I had six presents and having all six of them be the same, the same thing from Kellogg's uh, cereal tops. (laughs) And it really speaks to what our parents, um, you know, how they sacrifice. I mean, you think about your mom and what she probably was going through during that time and, uh, you know, worried about you. And, and took the time to to mail those in and get those so that she had something to give you in time, which was just uh, speaks volumes to her love. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that has taken shape uh, with hindsight, obviously, in the moment. Uh, I didn't see it that way. Of course. But, of course. But, of course not. But with a little more life experience, absolutely. I can look back and, and think about where my parents were at that stage of their lives. Um, the types of challenges that they were facing, the type of stress and anxiety that they were going through, all of those things. And I have a much, much deeper appreciation for those s- simple experiences. That's probably why, honestly, it's still with me as a memory um, because of that, because I can sit back and, and think about what it must have been like for them to be in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, this is totally random, but I, yeah. I have to ask it because it's uh, it's in the news and, and stuff. <laughs> you're you're a man of faith. You're Catholic. Mm-hmm. I am. How is how is all of this stuff in the news affecting your faith? You know, I look at it this way. Um, I, I was not Catholic. I, again, I didn't wasn't like a cradle Catholic where I was brought up in the faith and I was just told to go do this process. Um, you know, I was saved in 1997. At, at my first job from a pastor who was working the night shift with me. And, um, you know, right at the time that uh, my girlfriend got pregnant and, you know, um, I had that moment in which, you know, I was saved. Right. And from from that moment on, um, I did more to try to develop my faith, right, to get closer to God. And it hasn't changed. Right. Priests are human beings. Um, and, and it isn't just what you're seeing in the news The news is really challenging that it, it really picks and chooses what it's saying and how it says it. Um, you know, the, the scandal of, uh, sexual abuse, uh, with, with kids, um, and priest of all faiths, cause it is happening outside of the Catholic church. It's really just, just, um, people of authority that, that are making really, really heinous, bad choices in their lives. And, um, Unfortunately, there's definitely cases where the the people in higher authorities, some of them were the abusers and some of them were just covering it up to avoid it to become a public situation. And that just seems, you know, inappropriate as itself. But if you if you look back to the fundamental root of what being a Christian is about, it's about forgiveness. Right. Um, And that's something I learned a lot about. And and it doesn't make what they did any less serious. Um, and it doesn't take away the the pain and the hurt of the individuals who had to go through that trauma. Um, but I can tell you from, you know, the Diocese of St. Petersburg and the priests that I've been friends with, um, you know, over the last uh, 15 years, I guess it's been, um, that I have been Catholic. Um, I can just attest that there's more good people than there are bad. And that's going to go whether you're in a faith community or not. Um, and, and so really what there is to do right now is do what you see happening. The Catholic Church is focusing on cleaning up what they need to clean up. And I don't mean clean it up, make it go away, but, but address the wrongs, um, get healing for those who were wrong and, and, and grow as a community. So it hasn't at all 
stopped me. I, I get a lot of those looks. I get a lot of these same questions and, and people ask, you know, what does, does it make you, when you go to church, when you're listening to that priest give a homily, um, does it change the way you think about them? And, and you know, it doesn't. If you're going to a faith-based organization and you're listening to the individual, at the, you know, at the pulpit per se, and you don't know who they are, then maybe you're not really putting in the kind of energy you should be in, in, in your faith. And so I get to know those people. I get to know them personally. I have them to my house for dinner. My kids get to know them because I'm not going to have anyone around my family that I don't know because that's ultimately my job to protect them. And, and I can't be in all situations at all times, but I educate my kids on what to look for. And so I don't know if that answers your question, you know, but I think it kind of, kind of touched on a lot of it. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, didn't have a specific intent yeah. in mind. I just think yeah. it's an interesting dynamic right now with all that. And I think that, you know, I think faith is, um, I don't want to say that it's always under attack because I think anybody's personal perspective, whether it's faith based or not, is kind of always under attack. Um, sure. But I think, you know, it puts it in a, in a spotlight that it probably wasn't in. Um, you know, five, 10 years ago, although this has kind of surfaced a a few times, but. And if you think to just uh, in general, right. I mean, now with our technology, um, I, I, I tell people this all the time. I let my kids go outside. They ride their bikes in the neighborhood. It's not a gated community, right? I don't like living behind those barriers. Um, although I could, right. I just choose not to. And, and, and have this, this conversation we have with my friends and my wife and, you know, it isn't that there's more bad people in the world. It's just simply we have access to know it instantly. 40 years ago, some little kid might have been abducted in the middle of nowhere, Utah. We would never know it. Now we see it on Facebook instantly. We see it on the news instantly. And so, so people are focusing on the negative, uh, which is good. I mean, it's good to get awareness out. You know, in Florida, we have Amber Alert. Something's happening. You know, everybody knows it. Um, so, so that's valid, but people are missing all the good stories. Yeah. You know, there, and I think that there are some places people can go to find those ones. Um, but for whatever reason, they just don't get the same level of attention. So I, I'd go to this website called Upworthy. Um, oh yeah. Quite a bit. Upworthy's great. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's news, but it, it just has a, a really positive spin to it that obviously is refreshing when, every other news site's going to bombard you with, to your point, a lot of the negative stuff that's happening kind of out in the world. Um, you said something about it and it's just an interesting conversation. This idea of people in authority, um, and what that really means and how, uh, how there are so many situations where they've taken advantage of it. Uh, you know, right now we've got in the news as well, uh, these people that bribed, you know, the college administrators and stuff to get their kids into school. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just this idea of people who have some level of authority, have some level of power, um, and using or abusing that power. And I wonder what's the difference between that person who has power authority and uses it and abuses it, or that person who has power and authority and is able to, to leverage it and expand it and give it to other people. What do you think is that separator? Uh, Honestly, it comes down to just our, our natural human trait of survival, right? Like, like we're, we're created 
and in our, the way our brain function works is, is there's a survival mechanism. It's what has us automatically pull your hand away from the stove if it's hot when you lean on it, right? It's, it's that automatic. And, and so our culture uh, in, in over history, the culture really is, 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 is whoever is in power is in charge has plenty, right? And that's kind of the way it goes. I mean, even in a small dynamic of your company, you have somebody who's a supervisor or you have a group of individuals that are, you know, always playing for a little bit of, hey, I'm important. And really that's what it comes down to. Um, the human, it's human nature to want to be recognized, to want to feel accepted and want to be loved, right? And that's kind of, no matter what culture you're in, that's, that's the basic core. And so the individuals that, that, that take it outside of the context of, you know, hey, I should grow the community or I should be fiscally responsible for um, the role that I play and abuse that situation. Um, I think it just comes down to their their willingness over their life experiences to jump in into the gray area. Right. I mean, you think about it, somebody who's who's stealing gum. Right. They're they're going in and they're taking that gum every week when they're in the store with their parents. The next thing you know, they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, let me tell a different story. Let me let me let me let me change it a bit. Uh, kind of relates to the business and drug testing, right? I didn't realize. I used to hear for all of these years, marijuana is a gateway drug. You've heard that before, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so marijuana is a gateway drug. I, I kind of always thought that was just kind of you know I didn't like it. I didn't understand that process. But it was it was listening to a very wise person talk last year, and and what really came to mind was, was where I was going with stealing the gum, right? Is someone who's now people, if you surveys, they, you know, teenagers say pot is far less dangerous than alcohol, right? And it's just shifting in our community. And so whether you believe it's okay or not, isn't the question. It happens to be currently against the law in many states, as well as federally, right? To, to consume marijuana. And so as an individual, if I'm if I'm okay with breaking the law, whatever the law is, um, it's just going to, it just, that's where marijuana becomes the gateway to other drugs is because, well, if I'm, if I'm good here breaking the law, then I'm good over here breaking the law and I'm good, you know, and it just expands into that exploratory realm of there's no limits. And I think if you look at people of power, whether it's politicians or someone like myself, who's, you know, our organization has hundred at least a hundred families that work for us at USA Mobile Drug Testing, and the decisions I make here impact them. The decisions they make in their their local franchise businesses impacts all of us, right? And so we have to um, have some level of moral grounding. We have to have some moral compass that tells us this is wrong. I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do the right thing when no one's looking. Um, and and when you're okay with crossing the line and never brought back on course, there's nothing there to bring you back on track, then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And you're going to get really comfortable with just being where you're at. And I think it power just feeds that it's, it's, it's like jet fuel. Yeah. Well, and you said something early on in that you said about, you know, it's about survival and I, I agree with that. I think it also is dependent on how you define survival and mm -hmm. what that, what that, what kind of priorities that creates. So mm -hmm. 
you know, I just I just got off a podcast with a um, a gentleman who you know spent six years behind bars for for dealing drugs, um, and he grew up in an environment where that's what survival meant. Mm-hmm. You know, he grew up in a situation where every example that he saw, um, every success, and I put that in quotes that he saw, um, looked like dealing drugs. And so for him, you know, growing up in that environment, that was survival. And it took a, a number of years for him to get to a point where he realized that there was actually a different way to survive than that way. Um, and now, you know, he's, he's very successful uh, with a business, you know, built around his experiences in, in prison. But I think it goes back to how someone actually defines survival um, and these people that are in a, a place of authority and they're, they're using or abusing that place of authority, they've defined survival in a way that's only personally gratifying. It's only personally beneficial. It's not uh, survival that looks to the community, that looks to the family, that looks to people outside of themselves. Um, and, you know, you set a good example by simply saying, look, you know, with our, our company, USA Mobile Drug Testing, We've got at least 100 families that are impacted by the choices and decisions that we make. Um, and, and I can relate with that because obviously, you know, the decisions and choices I make with Spark Policy Institute impact families and individuals' lives. Um, but recognizing that that's the true authority or power is that I have some level of influence on people's lives and I want that level of influence to really be a positive thing. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think just to leave that thought, it's, it's clearly about your definition. And as a community, we, we define things differently than we do individually. Yeah, definitely. You know, we do a lot of, uh, with Spark Policy, we do a lot of community work, actually, where we're trying to get communities to center on um, some priorities so that collectively they can move forward. You said something else as you were talking that I think is really important, you said you have to have something that brings you back on track. And as you said that, I was thinking, what, you know, what does that look like? And, and I'm trying to wrap my head around something that brings you back on track. And, and the one thing that came to mind is in order to get back on track, you have to know what track you're on, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have like some have end point. Yeah. You have to have some end point. You have to have something that you're working toward that's clear and distinct Otherwise, there's nothing to come back to. So how do you, from your experience, how do you develop that thing, that that track, that goal, that purpose, that passion that you can come back to? How do you get that if you're in a place where you don't have it? It You know, because uh, there, there's two sides of that, right? There, Well, there's lots of sides of it. But really, in our conversation, there's there's my personal, moral, Christian compass, right? And so I use that Christian value that moral guideline of what's right and wrong. Um, again, having not been instilled from a Christianity perspective as a young age, but really developed it uh, as an adult, I, I use that as an opportunity. I mean, as Catholics, we go to confession. We come back to that center ground. My goal is to get to heaven, right? That's 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 what Jesus promises. That's That's where I'm headed. And in order to obtain that, I've got things that I need to do, right? There's actions I should take. It's It's there, there is just, yes, I'm blindly, I have faith and in, 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 uh, that's, I'm going to make it, but there's still the actions you take in, in everyday life behind the scenes and in public. 
but so I have that goal. And, and in order to achieve that goal, I got to keep coming back to zero. I keep coming back to zero. But in my business, I have a goal. I know where I'm trying to go as an organization. And I would say the biggest thing is coaching, uh, having uh, an accountability coach. Uh, I had a coach for over a year um, who over the last year has almost sold uh, three quarters of a million books, went from not having a published book to, to you know, uh, the one of the largest books in 14 languages was my personal coach on a weekly call for an hour to help me be accountable to the goals and keep bringing me back uh, frequently. It's the same reason we hire personal trainers to try to have success in our weight loss. If you don't have, like you said, a goal, an end game, you're never going to be able to come back. I mean, that's one of the, the biggest things I tell people as I'm coaching them in their business is you have to have someone who's going to have you say, it's okay that you didn't do what you were supposed to do this week or this month. You didn't take the actions you needed to do. You got distracted with your kids. You got distracted with this project uh, outside of your business. What are we going to do now? Let's go back and start over at the point where we left off. And and so depending on what part of your life you're working on, having having someone who can, can bring you back to zero um, or pick up from the point you left off and then keep moving is going to get those goals accomplished. It's real simple. Yeah. So uh, as you're talking about that, I have this framework that I use with my clients. Um, and it's very it's a very simple f- feedback framework. Um, because I think sometimes when we start talking about feedback and, and knowing how to course correct, we make it this really complicated thing about feedback, you know, in all of these different forms and all these different spaces. And, and so I have this very simple diagram that I use for folks and it's, it centers on feedback coming in about two things. So the first piece of feedback is, did you achieve the result you wanted to achieve? That's the first one. So you, in order to answer that question, you have to have articulated some result. You have to have some goal, some thing that you wanted to achieve in order to evaluate, did I achieve it? But so that's the first piece of feedback. Did I achieve the result I wanted to achieve? The second piece of feedback that helps inform your next steps is, did I do the things I said I would do? And so you have this goal that you want to achieve. So, you know, if we simplify it and we say, look, I wanted to lose 20 pounds. So that's the desired result. Did I achieve my desired result? If the answer is yes, then the next question is, did I do the things that I said I would do? So let's say that, you know, to get to keep it simple, I said I would exercise. I said I would, uh, you know, eat less in order to lose my 20 pounds. Well, so if we look at those two pieces of information, did I achieve the result I wanted to achieve? And did I do the things I said I would do? It tells us what to do next. So if I achieved the result, and this is what's fascinating, if I achieved the result, but I look back and I didn't actually change my diet or my exercise, then the goal I set was not a big enough goal. It was not a compelling enough goal. If I didn't have to change anything or do anything to achieve it, then I shouldn't have set the goal in the first place. If I, if I achieved the result that I wanted to achieve and I did the things that I said I would do, now I know that I was doing the right things. So I should keep doing them. I can set a bigger goal. I can expand on them. Um, or we can go to the flip side where I didn't achieve my desired result. And then I look at, okay, I didn't achieve it. So the next question is, did I do the things I said I would do? 
if I did the things I said I would do, if I changed diet and I changed exercise and I didn't achieve my desired result, then I'm doing the wrong things. I have to do something else with them. If I didn't achieve the desired result, but I did the things I said I would do, they were the wrong things. And then the other aspect is if I didn't achieve my desired result and I didn't do the things that I said I would do, well, obviously you've got to, to start, you got to pick up action, but that's probably hard to understand on a podcast. So I will post this diagram with the, the podcast just so people can see it, but it's very simple. It's those two questions. Did I achieve the result that I wanted to? And did I do the things I said I would do? And based on those two questions, you can center on what to do next, whether it's to get more clear about your desired result or whether it's to keep doing or change the, the actions that you're choosing. Yeah, great. That's good. But it's a very simple way to, to course correct. Um, and I think that we can you know, really overcomplicate feedback when we get away from those two core questions. Um, and, and I found actually in performance reviews and performance management with my own employees, it's really easy to get away from those two questions and start talking about stuff that, that doesn't have any alignment to real strategies and real goals. And then it's just feedback for the sake of feedback versus feedback for the sake of improvement. So tell me about your journey in becoming CEO of USA Mobile Drug Testing. Yeah, so I I, I didn't realize 10 years ago that I would be uh, CEO or not even just CEO working in an industry related to drug testing. Um, you know, I was I was trained in a vocational high school in, in the printing industry. Um, and again, going through the struggles that I did working two jobs, I was in the printing industry and worked my way into management over time. And I, I realized it just wasn't going to be enough. There was a lot of 90 hour weeks because I just had to, right? There wasn't that, that, that freedom and flexibility to be available for my daughter at the time um, that, I, that I really wanted. So um, having that conversation with my grandfather, he helped me get into my own printing company. Literally, we started it in my garage. He bought my first printing press and I just kind of went to work. I got up early, uh, was was throwing the paper for an entire year just to generate some revenue in the morning at three o'clock and then running my business all day long. And, and, and so in that journey of being in the printing and marketing industry, I got to meet a lot of franchising companies, um, one of which was the founder uh, here at USA Mobile Drug Testing and, and his concept of bringing um, drug testing professionals to companies. And it was a great concept. We were printing a lot of things for the new franchisees. And I knew, you know, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say uh, I was smart enough to really look and say printing was not going to be the future, right? I'm from the digital age. You know, I had my first uh -huh. computer when I was seven. Um, it was an IBM 8088 for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Um, and, and I knew that this, you know, is less and less being put on paper, even though my business was growing, I was just, I was grabbing more of the market share at the time, but it wasn't for me. I was 34 years old and I said, where do I want to go? I've been doing some personal training and development for a couple of years with Landmark Education and in and, and, and having new conversations with people. And I said, I'm going to do something new. Now's the time. I'm young enough. I, you know, whether this is politically correct or not, I, I feel like our good years are up till our 50s, maybe 60s. And, and I see a lot of people who I interview all the time who are in that range where those employers are no longer working with them. They were either phased out or they were forced to retire or whatever the situation is. And I don't want to find myself in that situation, um, you know, having worked in a career for a long time. So 
And we don't have pensions nowadays, right? That that's gone. Right. Unless you're in some very specific trade uh, or government organization, you, you don't have a pension after 20 years. You have to make that for yourself. And so uh, I decided at that point in my life, I said, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to take the risk. If it means I have nothing, that's okay. I'll, I'll get back up because I had proven I've done it before. And so um, uh, I, I organized the company. I took the seven employees I had. My brother was running the company and said, you guys manage the printing company. You guys can continue to do what you're going to do. I'm going to go seek new opportunity. And franchising was actually where I was looking, but it wasn't with USA Mobile Drug Testing. Um, but again, having developed a relationship with Joe, our founder, uh, you know, it just became a natural fit. And this is where I landed um, as the vice president of sales and marketing. And some of the things that we started to identify um, early on in the conversation um, was what do the franchisees need most and where do they need to focus? Because they were struggling. They were trying to figure out what to do. And it wasn't uh, because Joe and his team, you know, had a lot of lack of of expertise. They, they were providing a lot of training. They were providing a lot of tools. Um, and I think it just came down to the culture of what were the individuals? Who were they? Who were they? And what, what drove them to go from an executive at a company or a six-figured salesperson um, being, you know, in that middle life age saying, I want to own my own business, which in many cases for some of the small businesses, and I know you work with some very large businesses, but I'm sure you work with small ones too. Owning a small business is owning a job. You know, the guy who buys yeah. a Mac tools truck, who has to drive around in that truck to, you know, each of those mechanic shops and rep those tools, he's bought himself a job, you know, and if he's yeah. lucky, he's bought himself a six figure job, but it doesn't start out that way, right? You start out with having zero income in most cases, and you have to go from zero to to the end game. And, and even with a franchise structure, sometimes you're doing a lot of that work on your own. You have to choose to get up and go to work. And so the franchisees in our organization, I think, were just a little lost. They weren't real focused on what action should I be taking on a daily basis. And so um, I immediately started doing a lot of webinars and training and changing the culture so that they could focus on sales. You know, there was a lot of marketing happening. We were printing a lot of stuff. We were doing a lot of postcards. There was lots of things that they could do from a, let's get out in the world and have people know who we are. But if you're not following that up with actual sales techniques, asking people for the business, using the marketing and advertising as credibility, which is what it does, and leveraging that credibility and talking to people, you're not going to grow your business. And that's what many of them found themselves in their first year is I'm not growing at the rate I thought I should. And most of those individuals came from working a job, 99% of them. There was, there was you know, a doctor who had a practice and that's kind of his own practice, but that's not the same thing as owning a small service business um, or owning you know, any other type of business for that matter. Um, it, it requires activity daily, more than once a day. And as you said, having those goals and being able to come back to them. And you know, if it's, I'm gonna make 50 calls this week, make 50 calls, make 10 calls, but make some calls, come back and have a conversation. Did I do it? How did that call go? It didn't end, give me an end result of you know getting to gain a client. Well, what was the conversation? What was said? We brought in some sales trainers who work with franchising organizations 
Um, I put most of the franchisees through those programs. It was, it was about a 90 day to six month program where they did some, you know, general sales training. And most of these guys were very, very intelligent. They were very successful individuals when they came to us. They're high class people, but they hadn't had the conversations on how to focus it on this type of a business model. And so giving them that training, I mean, we had one lady, um, Lori, she's great. She, she owned a, 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 her own business and she had uh, an insurance agency. So she was used to talking to people. And some of the things she learned in that training program helped her close business that she couldn't close before because this is a different type of business model than she had. And, and so again, over that course of time and just historically, we were able to double their sales year over year over year because they were focusing on the type of activities they needed. And really, that's just you know the first step, right? Uh, as I mentioned, I, I took my business from being in the garage to being in a 6,000 square foot building with multiple printing presses and staff. And you know we wrapped you know, large vehicles in our sign shop and we did a whole world of, of things there. Um, but it didn't, it didn't just like happen and here I am and this is great. You know, I own a boat, I'm successful, yeah. right? It, it yeah. just doesn't work like that. There was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of weekly paychecks I couldn't make because I wasn't collecting the AR at several hundred thousand dollars in AR and struggling to get the money. You know, there was there was all of those things that you deal with from going from a business with zero revenue to having a paycheck to making a profit to organizing it to sell to somebody. Right. And so um, that's what I bring. And that's kind of what brought me from, you know, just coming in here as a vice president of sales and marketing to saying I want to have more skin in the game and now owning the business and, and bringing those strategies and helping those franchisees over that journey. Right. We've been franchising for around seven and a half years now. And some franchisees have been here for for seven years. And at each stage of the game, they haven't been there before. They haven't had to figure out, yeah, I have, you know, seventy five thousand dollars worth of aging. How am I going to get that money in? Well, I can show them because I've done it. And and so we have those conversations and they get that constant coaching from us. Um, and, and that's a strategy. And that's why many people choose franchise. Yeah, well, I think it's a common thing in life to to look at uh, decisions and think this one decision is going to change everything. Uh, so this, you know, this decision to invest in a franchise is going to change everything. So I'm I'm buying a, a system that um, runs itself, you know, and I'm not going to have to do some of the things that I've had to do in the past. And I'm, you know, the the franchise is just going to feed me. Um, you know, feed me business and, and everything's already in place. I think it's easy to look at those things and not realize that no matter what it is, there's going to have to be work. I mean, you look at somebody who wins the lottery in order to maintain your, uh, your newfound wealth, it's going to take some work. I mean, how many people lose all of their money when they win the lottery? Um, and the wow. same thing goes for, you know, investing in a franchise. And it makes me think about, I had a guest on and I wrote about her actually in my book, Cordia Harrington. And uh, she, at one point in her life, uh, bought a McDonald's franchise. And you would think of all the franchises that you can buy, that would be your cash cow, right? Like this McDonald's. I mean, there's you know, millions spent on advertising across the country. Everybody knows who McDonald's is, what they serve. Um, and it, yet she found herself in a position after buying her franchise where they were losing money. They were losing $20,000 a week um, 
with her McDonald's franchise. And, uh, and she wasn't sure what to do. I mean, the franchise system was in place, but they didn't have an answer for her. And uh, hers is, you know, this awesome story that I tell all the time because I, I just love it. But uh, she was in this spot where they're losing all of this money. The franchise didn't have the answer for her, um, but she just went out and she constantly started taking different action to try to drive customers. So the first thing she did is she went and she bought some CB radios because they sat on this like corridor of two different interstates. So they went out and they bought two CB radios and she literally had staff like getting on CB radios, letting truckers know that if they came in, they'd give them, you know, like a discount on a Big Mac or whatever. So that was the, that was the first step. Yeah. I mean, that was the first step and it helped a little bit, but not enough to, you know, recoup $20,000 a week that they're losing. Um, and then she made the, the most brilliant business decision. She actually found a Greyhound bus line within the town that was for sale she bought the bus line and then she moved the stop to her McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> so she went from the traffic, the organic traffic that she had to literally 80 buses, 80 Greyhound buses a day stopping in her McDonald's parking lot. Uh, and she went from, you know, losing $20,000 a week to being one of the top 25 McDonald's franchises in the country. Um, but the point is, even though the franchise and the system was there, she still had to be taking actions. She still had to be creative. She still had to be innovative. She still had to have the drive. Like there's not a system in the world that's going to do it all for you. You've got to have the drive, the initiative, the creativity, the gumption to go out and do it. And in franchises, a lot of that's in place for you. So it can, you know, to your point, they have a lot of coaching around. It's hey, a jump start. Take calls, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a jump start. A jump start. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But you still got to have the gumption, right? You still got to put the action. You have it. to. We, I interview a lot of fr- potential franchisees. You know, we're, we're one of the, you know, uh, only franchises that's kind of you can start in, in your home. Um, it's not yogurt. You know, they're not in the food <laughs> industry. And, and so people think, you know, drug testing somewhat clinical. It's kind of healthcare, and 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 they and it's very clean. So we get a lot of inquiries. But I can tell you. 95% of the individuals looking don't have the gumption and the questions I have, you know, my sales team ask them and then they bring them to me to kind of present, Hey, here's a candidate. Um, they just don't have what it takes. And, and having worked with a significant number of, of business owners in my uh, five, six years here now at USA mobile drug testing, I've seen all kinds. And so I kind of look for people who do have the grit. They know what it takes and, and as long as they're clear, then we move forward. And, uh, you know, as a result, they, they do better. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's something that I've learned uh, running my own business. And, and I didn't hire most of our staff because I, I bought my company. Um, but something that we've learned collectively and I've learned personally is those which soft skills to really be looking for. So historically, our business hired exclusively based on um, – expertise. So literally, you know, based on a paper resume, based on, do you have a PhD? Uh, you know, do you have extensive research experience? Can you show that you can do qualitative or quantitative research? Do you have the technical expertise? And we almost disregarded the soft skill and the mm-hmm. cultural fit for the organization. And it, and it was a really bad scenario because we could hire all of these really, really talented people uh, you know, we employ a lot of PhDs, 
And we could hire all these really, really talented people, but they missed like the core pieces of being able to think strategically or being able to uh, build meaningful relationships with clients. So they had all the technical expertise, but they missed those soft skills. And it's because we didn't focus in enough on those things like gumption, those things like grit, those things like strategic thinking, like emotional IQ. Um, and it turned out to be you know, a pretty tough challenge for our business to resolve. Absolutely. But it sounds like it sounds like you guys started in a little better place where you focused more on some of those soft skills than on the you know degree or, or paperwork. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with with any financial investment, there was a minimum requirement that that they had certain net worth. But it, it did come down to: Are they willing to take on doing the work when there's nobody telling them to get up in the morning and go do it? Because that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, so what comes next for you, David? I mean, uh, as you move forward, what's what's coming up in life for you? What what are you looking to as the next exciting thing? Um, you know, from a business perspective, um, just simply growing our company, right? Growing our brand, being able to provide uh, what we do, and really set ourselves up as being the authority in the industry. I mean, we work for several Fortune 100 companies, but that isn't our focus, right? We're found online. So that's how those people find us. But th that's not my goal. We work with a lot of small businesses, people who, who need this service. Drug testing happens to be one of the smallest things in a company. It shouldn't cost them a lot of money. It shouldn't be something they think a lot about. It's a little piece of what they need to do to do what they do. And so our goal is to make it real easy for them so they don't have to spend that time. And and so that's really, you know, our focus is just continue to grow our organization. Um, you know, I'm still pretty young. I'm growing my family, um, you know, and raising those kids to hopefully have the same moral compass that, that I do. Um, and, and one of the things that we're doing to try to give back because we are growing, we are, we are doing quite well as an organization is, is to give back. Right. I, I often give back a lot in our personal life. We do a lot from, uh, you know, community homeless uh, organizations. Uh, we help run some of their drug testing programs for some of the homeless shelters in town. Um, but, but, but nationally, as a brand, we're, we're hoping to give back uh, to the veteran community uh, by providing for those small businesses uh, free drug testing services to help get them on their feet when they're growing and they need to hire those the second and third and fourth staff members um, because that's, a, that's another point in which many business owners as they start is when do I hire that second, third, fourth person and who should they be and what should they do? Um, and, and then a part of that is screening those employees. So I, I love that. I love that you're focused on giving back. I love that you have a vision behind it and that you found uh, a specific kind of community that can find benefit from the way and the services that you have to offer. I think it's so important for any business to have that level of vision and passion behind what they do. And I think that sometimes people think they have to, um, they have to create some kind of artificial vision versus just being real with it that says, look, you know, uh, there may not be anything super sexy about drug testing, but the reality is that it has a big impact on small businesses and we can offer 
um, some some really key services to help or other organizations. And we can build a vision and a passion around that, even though whatever it is, whether it's drug testing or research or whatever it is, that may not look sexy on the surface. And I think a lot of people are going for something that looks sexy versus saying, hey, there's some real true value behind what it is we do and building their passion and their drive behind that value. So I love that you guys are doing that, that you're focused on that as you grow the business, that you're focused on giving back. I mean, that's a, a big part of where I operate from a value standpoint as well. Awesome. Well, David, uh, what would you, what's the, the kind of big piece of advice you would leave the audience with? Well, uh, it's actually pretty simple. And in, in, in preparing for our conversation today, I, I um, w- was looking at that, right? What would I leave your audience with? That's probably the most important thing that, that would, that's made a difference in my business. Um, and, and I realized that um, I, I haven't actually had a coach in a few months. I'm telling all myself, right? So I'd gotten to the place in my business with coaches and that accountability and that weekly call um, to get where I'm at and then got kind of complacent, right? I mean, just to be honest, doesn't mean I haven't been focused and growing and doing the things that we need to do, but, but really have I lost sight of my goal. And so um, I'm interviewing some new coaches now, but uh, looking for that strategy. And I think anyone who wants to grow a business, no matter how big you are, no matter who you are, and I, I'm, I'm, I would, I'm going to ask you, but I'm assuming you've got some some sort of a accountability partner, uh, business partner, or otherwise, or somebody you hire. But that's that's something you need. You need to have somebody. It's not that they're going to get you up. They may not be your motivator, but they're going to help bring you back um, and and help you course correct. And so I would advise highly, no matter who your coach is, that you can find somebody who can help you course correct with your guidance and, and your planning. So, well, personally, I resonate with that because I do coaching. Um, yeah. but to your point, um, we also, uh, have recruited an advisory panel for our organization, um, that serve as coaches that, you know, we literally pay, they jump on calls every quarter. Um, they come out once a year and they are that group. So it's not just one individual. It's actually a group of folks that are experts in different areas. Um, that provide that accountability, help us as an organization get back on track, help us see things that maybe we're missing. Um, and that's that's the value, right, of a coach is somebody that can constantly be pushing you. One of the things that I always find irony in is the person who knows that they want to coach, but they're waiting for something. They're like, well, it's just not the right time. It's not, you know, I need, I don't have quite enough money, whatever it is. And yet, you look at the situation and you say, well, if you had a coach, guess what? You'd be moving forward. You wouldn't be worried about the money. Uh, you know, I just interviewed somebody last week that was looking at coaching with me. Um, and the thing is they would, you know, if they had a coach, they'd be making twice as much as they're making right now. And it's not always about making more money, but you know, these objections that people have for actually hiring a coach, almost all of them are resolved by hiring a coach. And so it's this interesting it's taking the action. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, David, I, I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast today. I, I love your insights. I love um, the passion that you're bringing, the values that you're operating from. Um, and thanks for sharing your experience, your life experience with us, um, how you operate, where you're coming from, and the good that you're trying to do out in the world. Absolutely. Thanks, Kyle. Anytime. 
All right, folks, thanks for joining us for a, uh, another episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction. Thanks to David Bell for joining us from USA Mobile Drug Testing and sharing his insights. Catch us on the next episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction.